Good morning, you guys. I want to invite you to turn over to Galatians chapter 5 for the next bit of our time together. We're going to be wrapping up this chapter together this morning as we kind of hit the home stretch in our study through Galatians. We've got Galatians chapter 5 finishing up to today. We'll start on chapter 6 next week. I have just a couple weeks after that for, uh, for, to, to finish up the letter and then a couple weeks after that to to celebrate Christmas together. So we got, we got the, the end of one series and then a wonderful chance to, to rejoice together in who, who Christ is and the meaning of his coming. Um, I, wanna, I wanna, as you're turning over to Galatians chapter five, just reset where we are for those of you who might be visiting with us. Um, if you are visiting with us this morning, I wanna add my welcome to the welcome Matt already gave you and say thank you so much for choosing to be here. And please do give us a chance to get to know you a little bit after the service. We will be hanging around in here for a while, and we'd love to meet you. Um, I also want to just make sure you know why we're doing what we're about to do. So every week, um, at the center of our gatherings together, we try to understand what God has spoken in His Word. Everything that we hope for from our lives and for our future hinges on a God who not only made us, but has spoken to us about what He has done to remake us and to redeem us from the things that have gone wrong, things that we have done and things that have been done to us. Because that word's our only hope, we put it at the heart and center of everything that we do when we gather. And each week, at this point in our services together, we try to walk through a section of God's word and understand what it means on its terms. And then also looking through it, try to understand how it affects the lives we're living today. So that's what we're going to do together for the next little bit. It'll be a lot of, uh, uh, probably be a lot more productive and helpful for you if you have it in front of you. So we've provided Bibles at the center of each aisle up under the chairs. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, just ask someone who's seated down near the center to, to pass it to you. Uh, take that with you. We'd love for that to be yours. And, um, and we'd love to talk to you about what we're going to discuss today. Uh, from God's word. So if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Galatians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. Where we've come in Galatians chapter 5 is a section on the difference that the gospel makes for how we live. The gospel is a word that just means good news. It describes what God has done for us in Christ to redeem us from our sin and from the brokenness of the world that we live in. It's good news because it comes to us with hope and not judgment with freedom and not more slavery, with a gift given to us for free, not some new standard to try to attain. It's good news because it's all of Jesus and all given to us. And Paul's been trying to help his friends in in Galatia understand that good news, what it is, what it isn't, trying to separate it out from things that had distorted it for them. And now, at this point in the letter, he's trying to help them understand, all right, if this good news is true, what difference does that make for you? Not just for who you are, but for how you live. How will your your day-to-day change if you really have been loved by God in Jesus in the way Paul's been describing. Here's another way to put it. If you don't have to live anymore with the pressure to justify your life, to prove to yourself, to prove to God, to prove to other people that you matter, if you no longer have to spend your time spinning your own wheels to earn good things from God's hand, then what, what's your life for? If it's not for all those things, if it's not, in other words, for what you'd normally do with it, what is it for? That same question lies behind the text we're going to look at this morning, but it's it's going to go in a slightly different direction than what Paul's taken so far. He's still going to be talking about the freedom that the gospel gives us to do different things with our lives than we would have done otherwise. But now he's going to talk about that freedom using a new character. Now, in place of freedom... He's going to talk to us about the Spirit. The Spirit is a character that Paul has mentioned before. God's own Spirit, or Paul describes him as the Spirit of God's Son. Part of the Trinity, part of who God is. Now come to live in God's children to teach them who they are as God's children. He's been mentioned before in this letter. But in the passage we're going to look at today, we get a deeper look than we've had yet at who he is and what he does. At his agenda, in other words for our lives. Paul has said, don't use your freedom that the gospel gives you as an opportunity for the flesh. That was last week's message. Now this week he's going to say, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't do that. You won't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh if you're walking by the Spirit. In fact, if you walk by the Spirit, he says in verse 16, 
you won't gratify the desires of the flesh at all. What he's telling us here is that the Spirit, God's Spirit given to us is the key to living with the freedom of the gospel that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. The Spirit is the key to us enjoying what our freedom is for, its purpose. And the key phrase in what we're going to read here in just a second is this command to walk by the Spirit. It comes at the very beginning of what I'm going to read. Verse 16 comes at the end, down in, in, um, in verse 25. And so all I want to do this morning is try to figure out what it means to walk by the Spirit. What is that command? We want to know what that command means so that we can know how to obey it. That's our task this morning. And I'm going to break down what this command means. The things, the things I want to bring to the surface from this text so that we can leave understanding it and embracing it. I'm going to break it down into three steps. And I don't know if it's because the, uh, the text itself uses the language of battle or if it's because it was Veterans Day on Monday and you know, all that camo and those war movie reruns are still fresh on the brain. But I'm going to break this down in three steps that are going to use battle as a metaphor for us. I want us to understand what the battle is. The battle between the spirit and the flesh. That's the first few verses. I want us to understand what the objectives are in this battle. What the spirit is after. What he's trying to accomplish. What the flesh is after. What the flesh wants to accomplish. So that, when the, so that we can then, at the end of that, understand our assignment. What have we been given to do in this battle that rages between the spirit and the flesh? So the battle itself, I want to make sure you understand what that is. The objectives, what each combatant is trying to accomplish. So that then you can understand what your assignment is. We'll pray that by the end, all of us understand what it means to walk by the spirit. So that we can do that together as we leave this morning. Now, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. While I read, I'm going to pick up in verse 16 of chapter 5, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 26, the very end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first thing I want to make sure you guys notice is this battle that's being waged between the spirit and the flesh. That's going to come out in verses 16 to 18. If you're a Christian, friend, there is right now inside you being waged a battle to the death. It's a battle that's going to go on every day for as long as you live. That battle is a basic part of being a Christian. It's not a surprise It's built in. And it's the battle between what Paul calls the flesh and what Paul calls the spirit. Let me read verse 17 again. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So I want to make sure you know what this battle is, especially who's facing off on either side. One reason I want to just start here and slow down a little bit and make sure you understand the combatants in this battle is that I think there's a quick reading we could do of that verse that misunderstands who he's talking about. The battle between the flesh and the spirit is not a battle between 
bodies, like physical world and souls, the immaterial part of who you are. That is a notion that was popular at Paul's time. You know, the Greeks uh, often pitted the, the, the physical, the material, against the, the spiritual or the immaterial. That's a very different way of looking from the world than the one Paul had, than the one that he came up with through his Jewish roots, and then the one that, that's at the heart of Christianity. Christianity doesn't teach, as, as much as it's been mischaracterized in the past, doesn't teach that bodies are bad, that the material world is bad, and that the soul is good, and the immaterial world is, is good. It actually doesn't teach that at all. It teaches a unity of the human person between the, the you that's inside and the you that's outside. It's all just you. So he's not talking about the difference between physical and, and spiritual. No, every, everything about this battle happens inside you. Happens in the, the you that's in there, the inner you. On the one side, if, if that's not what he means... It's not physical versus spiritual. What does he mean? On the one side of this battle is the flesh. For Paul, that's code language. For Paul, the flesh is a a way of referring to your default mode, your fallen sinful human nature, that self-serving part of you, that self-centered bent that wants what it wants on its terms. Here's how one uh, person put it. The flesh is the ego, that inner you, which feels an emptiness and uses the resources in its power to try to fill it. It's that hungry part that always wants more and more and more of what it wants. The flesh is this sinful nature that would bend all of the world inward on you so that you're at its center and everyone else who intersects with you intersects as like supporting characters to your lead who are useful to you or a threat to you based on what they do to you and your story. The flesh wants us at the center of the universe. And on the other side of this battle is God's spirit. This is the spirit that he mentioned back in chapter 4, verse 6. There he's talked about the spirit as having the job of convincing us that we're God's children. Through the gospel, you get the spirit of God's son that comes into you and cries out, Father! Where from the inside out, you know yourself to be his. You know yourself not to be alone in this world, but cared for by the father who made you and has all the resources necessary to give you what you need. It's God's spirit that teaches us that's who we are and causes us to cry out to him. It's his spirit, in other words, that brings to our inner lives the calm and confidence that comes from knowing he cares for us. Then we saw his spirit at the end of chapter four again. There, it was his spirit that, that's the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. In that section about Hagar and Sarah, the children of promise and the children of the flesh, you get this flesh spirit thing going on again. And flesh meant Abraham taking situation into his own hands, coming up with his own way of making sure he got what he wanted. Versus the spirit, which is what, what God uses to accomplish what God says he'll do in ways that are miraculous, in ways that you couldn't do for yourself, in ways that you just have to sit back and watch. God's spirit is his agent of power in the world. We've seen the Spirit come up, in other words, a couple of other times. Now I think the shade on the Spirit that we're getting here is the Spirit as the one promised long ago in the prophets. Back in the prophet Ezekiel, hundreds of years before this, God's Spirit centers into the, one of the most important and beautiful promises of the new day that God had promised to bring. There it was His Spirit that would be put inside of His people so that no longer would people have to tell them what to do and not to do from the outside. No longer would the law just hang out there as a standard to meet or a judgment to to fall. But the law would be written on their hearts by God's Spirit so that they'd start to do what God loves because they love it too. Not because they have to be constrained into it. Not because they're afraid or prideful, but because they love it. It's God's Spirit that renovates God's people. That's what the promise of the prophets had been. And now Paul is saying, it's here. This spirit that was promised is inside you as a Christian, waging war against the old self to keep you from doing, as Paul says, the things you want to do. There's the battle. You've now got two centers of desire in you if you're a Christian. You've still got that old self, or Paul's words, the flesh that wants what it wants on its terms, hungry, always looking to feed. And you've got the spirit now in you that opposes that flesh, that brings about in you new loves so that you desire what God desires. The flesh and the spirit inside you right now are at war if you're in Christ. So there's two things I want you to know about that battle before we move on to the objectives. 
the first thing I think you need to know, the first response to the reality of this battle inside you, if you're a Christian, is that you should be encouraged. Um, If you feel like you're living an internal tug of war, that's not actually a bad sign. And sometimes I think we do feel like it's a bad sign. If your head is still turned all too quickly by the, the sins that have held you back for a long time, it can be really, really frustrating. And I don't think you should make peace with that. It should frustrate you at one level. But the fact that sin is still a battle for you isn't a sign that you're not a Christian. If there's a battle going on in, inside of you, it's actually a sign that you probably are a Christian. Because now sin doesn't hold sway anymore. It has to fight for every inch of ground it takes. If you feel for yourself that your enjoyment of sin is always tainted by wanting to get rid of it and your enjoyment of good things is always tainted by the pull of selfishness in the other direction so that you're never fully doing what you want that's not a sign that you're not a Christian it's probably a sign that you are one and one of the most beautiful promises that Christianity makes to us that the gospel makes to each one of us is that in becoming a Christian We have deployed inside of us a power that will not be overcome. I've I've quoted this more times than I should, and I'm going to do it again because I just love it. But one of my favorite books, Bruce Reed, Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan pastor, talks about, celebrates the gospel as this promise that in Christ, Christ has made our enemies his enemies. Our battle is not just ours anymore. He fights for us. And it's the Spirit through whom he fights. The Spirit are like his special forces sent behind the lines to do battle that we don't have the strength to do. And Paul's tone in, this ver- in these verses, it's optimistic. I hope that's how you read it. Hey, he's not unclear in his own mind and heart about where this battle ends. It's not a fair fight. The days of the flesh are numbered. And because of the spirit at war inside of us, we will win in him. Friends, this is also an opportunity for you to think about what it would mean for you to commit to following Jesus. If you've come here this morning to consider that and you're not yet a Christian, don't hold back from following Jesus because you see how ugly your heart is. I mean, maybe what's got you interested in him in the first place is that you've hit bottom somewhere else. And you're just tired of living as you. I think that's actually a really good, healthy place to be. And what you need to know is that you don't have to climb your way back up into some new version of you before Jesus will have you. That bottom you've hit, that helplessness you've accepted, that's the starting point for your relationship with him. In other words, you don't have to clean up your house before you invite him over. When you turn to Jesus, in fact, you assume your house is too far gone for your cleaning skills. You need a professional on this job. And part of what you're doing is turning to him to take up what you can't take up for yourself. You're turning to him, yeah, for forgiveness. He has the right to give that to you because he paid the cost of your sins. But you're also turning to him for the power of his spirit to make you new from the inside out. And what you can't resist the desires of your flesh, he can't not overcome. It's just who he is. And it's what he's promised to do. So if you feel this internal tug of war, knowing this battle's going on inside of you, knowing it's a basic part of what it is to be a Christian, the first thing you need to know is be encouraged. And if you're interested in being a Christian, the first thing you should know is that you can be today, like right now, if you want. And nothing else has to change except you giving up the idea of cleaning up your house on your own and letting Jesus come in and do it for you. Be encouraged. The other thing, the other response to this battle, the second response to knowing that battle is being waged in your heart right now is that you ought to be careful. You've got to be really careful. And here's what I mean. And let me put another word on that. Not just be careful. You need to be very self-suspicious. It would be very unwise of us to hear this language of being led by the Spirit that's all through this passage and draw a straight line from being led by the Spirit to whatever your gut is telling you to do. 
as if the Spirit leads you through your intuitions and it's safe to go with what you feel. I, I hear that language. It's kind of anecdotally used for what it means. I feel the Spirit leading me. Friends, we've got to be really, really careful with language like that. That is not what Paul is telling us here. Because what Paul is telling us is actually that whatever you feel could just as well be the flesh as be the Spirit. That battle is ongoing. So it's not enough to just look inside yourself and go with whatever you find there. What you need to know is, am I looking at the influence of the flesh and its desires? Or am I looking at the influence of the Spirit and its desires? Am I looking at something that needs to be crucified, to use Paul's language from later, or something which needs to be followed? That's the question. And we've got to be careful in taking it up. And that leads me directly to the objectives. How can we know what we're looking at when we look inside ourselves? If we want to know what's best to do, and we're doing a kind of self-inventory to try to get there, how can we know what we're looking at, whether we're looking at the flesh and its desires or at the spirit and its desires? Paul helps us here with two separate lists. To keep with this martial framework I'm going with, uh, I'm calling them the objectives in this battle. What's the flesh producing? What's the spirit producing? What does the flesh want to achieve in our lives? What does the spirit want to achieve in our lives? Starting in verse 19, going through verse 21, Paul gives us a list that helps us to see what the flesh is after. So again, go back to what is the flesh, not your body. Your sinful nature. The part of you that wants what it wants, when it wants it, on its terms, and takes no prisoners in that effort. The part of you that would bend the whole world in on you and ask no questions other than, do I want it, can I get it? That part of you has these objectives. Now the list, I mean, before I get into it, I want to say, this list is definitely not meant to be comprehensive. He ends it with, and things like these just so that we know that he's not trying to give us a master list of everything the flesh is after. It's examples. It's also not a list that has a real clear balance or aim for the order that it comes in or how the different pieces fit together. And that's, I think, because what Paul really wants to do is have this list wash over you like a wave. He wants the cumulative effect to move you. He wants you to get a sense of almost the aesthetic of the flesh, what it feels like to live at its bidding. So I'm going to go into the list and, and, and try to make the individual pieces uh, understandable, but let's don't lose the forest for the trees because the forest is the point. He wants you to feel something of what the flesh is after. And what, that, what the flesh is after is, is to take over your life, to consume you and through you everything else that it can get its hands on. I think of the cumulative effect of the flesh that comes through this list as like a lion trapped in a cage surrounded by like a bunch of baby gazelles and the, and the door comes open. Like what happens then? Well, if you just turn the flesh loose, what happens? What does that lion do? That lion is going to feed. This list is the lion feeding once the door has opened. So let's get into the list. It starts with several words that refer to sexual activity. Each of the words, uh, uh, starting in verse uh, 19, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality are all tied back into sexual, uh, sexual practices or situations that are condemned by God's law. And what Paul is putting his finger on here would have been radical in his time. Like the, the time that Paul lived in, the notion that any sex that was available to you was, could, could not be good sex or could be not good sex was just un, unheard of almost. There were some things that were, that were honor or shame were involved, but the notion that, that, that immorality could attach, that, that there would be boundaries drawn around what, what you could do and with whom was not a notion that, that ruled in Paul's day no, any more than it does today. But Paul, and, and, and what Paul's pointing to is is this sense that once the only thing that matters is whether you can get it, people are going to get hurt. The flesh can't stand the notion that some sex is not acceptable. The flesh doesn't ask, is this good? Or who gets hurt? Or what will the consequences be? The flesh just wants to feed. And the same theme runs through sexual sin from pornography all the way to sexual assault where self is at the center rather than God's good design 
The only question that matters is, can I get it? The next words, the next two words focus on pagan religion. Same theme here, different context. Again, the theme is self-gratification. The self just wanting to feed. Only when that applies to religion, what you get is idolatry. Idolatry and sorcery are two words for basic pagan religious practices where you've got pagan gods that are attached to the powers of the world that you know you need on your side if you're going to get what you need from life. And sorcery, a way of sort of manipulating things so that they are on your side. A way of pressing the right buttons, if you will. Of of, of casting the right spells so that you can channel or harness the powers that you need. But it's always towards your agenda, right? In pagan religion, it's not personal. It's not relational. It's a transaction where they have something you need, you have something you want. You give them something so that they give you something with you always at the center of it. Idolatry is always about self-gratification. That's why it makes Paul's list. The next words after idolatry and sorcery are all a a bunch of words that focus on what happens in relationships when self-gratification is your main agenda in life. What happens to your relationships when you're that lion that wants to feed and now there's more than one hungry lion in that field full of gazelles? Then what? Well, what happens is enmity and strife, jealousy, when that other lion gets the gazelle you wanted. Fits of anger. Rivalries between these hungry lions. Dissensions, divisions, and envy. You can see it's, it, there's a lot of overlap between these words. They're just meant to wash over you and to pound you over and over again with what happens to your relationships with other people when you and those other people really just want to be gratified. You really just want what you want. This is what happens. And then the final two words are about substance abuse drunkenness, and then the word translated in my version, orgies, is really a reference to to drink-induced wild parties. That was the best way that the commentators came up with. It's not like a sexual orgy. It's just crazy parties where where there's no holds barred. Basically, what what he's trying to get at is you turn to these substances for the fun that they give you, and they end up ruling you. So you think you're in charge and are for a while, but then at some point, the thing that you gratified yourself with becomes a master over you that you can't control. In the desire to control everything, you end up controlling nothing. It's one reason that the, that the Bible so consistently speaks against substance abuse, against allowing these, these substances to take ownership over you and control your behavior. If it gets to the point where that's happening, you have moved beyond the enjoyment of God's good gifts into a self-centered, self-gratifying, hungry lion feeding on gazelles. You're taken over by desire. That's always the work of the flesh. That's what the flesh wants. It wants what it wants on its terms without any questions asked. Paul's list is meant to show you a kind of tornado of desire just moving through an area and the vast wasteland that lies behind it. Because that's the objective of the flesh, to make a wreck out of your life and everyone that it touches. This is what it looks like for the old self to have its way. This is what it looks like when me being me means me getting whatever I want on my terms. That's the objectives of the flesh and the objectives of the spirit run exactly counter to them. Against this picture of a tornado of desire asking nothing, just blowing through, taking what it can get, Paul gives us a picture of the spirit and its fruit What kind of life does the Spirit aim to produce? What desire does the Spirit have for the person that he inhabits? What effect from that person in the world around them? If you think of the flesh as this tornado that leaves this path of destruction in its wake, what effect will the Spirit have on those who live around and in proximity to the person that he inhabits? Once again, the list that we get here, starting in verse 22, is not meant to be comprehensive. This is not all that the Spirit is doing. It's another list that's meant to give you a sense of it, a kind of impression. Let me just give you a few of these key examples. Let them wash over you and leave the impression Paul wants them to. Look at the list with me. Begins with love. That's not an accident. Everything else in this comes from love. And Paul's been talking about love already. 
in chapter 5, that's been one of his main themes in this first few verses, that your freedom then becomes for you not an opportunity to just feed yourself, but an opportunity to pour yourself out to those who need you. So love is what it looks like to be free, to not have to worry about padding your own resume and, and, and storing up more for yourself in your stock room or what have you, but to just give and give and give because you're secure in his love for you. Love is what it looks like. It's at the top of the list. It's the opposite of the self-gratifying flesh. It's attentive to the needs of others. It looks to serve others even when it costs something. Then from love, he goes to joy. Think of joy as as, as, as far different from this restless and discontented hunger of the self that's always looking for more and more and more and never content. And joy is, is a rest in what's given and a gratitude for the goodness of it all. A joy that's just stable and okay with what is because it comes from him. Then peace. Think of peace as the opposite of the division and the strife and the enmity and the jealousy and the fits of... If there's anything you can say about this list of the flesh, it's that that, that, that fellow is not peaceful. Right? He's not at peace in himself and he is certainly not at peace with those around him. It is a, a, a swath of destruction that this person is leaving. But the Spirit produces peace inside of you peace with others and peace with life from peace also patience patience with others patience with life if you think about the flesh it's just wanting to feed self-gratifying always and think about the patience as as not needing to manipulate your circumstances not needing to through sorcery or whatever like tinker with everything so that it all falls just so a willingness to let things come. Not bulldozing those who might slow you down. All of it only possible if the Spirit has taught you to cry out, Abba, Father, to one who knows and whose timing can be trusted. Kindness and goodness. Think, again, think of, think of the swath of destruction behind the, the, the self-gratifying flesh and now look at the fruit of the spirit that moves out towards people with, with a love that produces kindness and goodness in their lives not, not seeking to exploit them not seeking to drain them dry for your own purposes but seeking to help where you can faithfulness think of that as over against the rash and unpredictable and opportunistic flesh that just, that just looks for wherever it can get whatever it is that it wants, at all times, never resting. The faithfulness that the Spirit produces is like a, a ballast, it's strong and immovable. Gentleness, rather than being impressed with yourself and harsh towards others and worried about the impression you're leaving on everyone, gentleness just takes what comes from people and responds in a way that lifts them up, not that smashes them down, in a way that it's good for them and cultivates them, not in a way that, that, that judges them. doesn't use them to prop up your own self-image, but, but genuinely cares for them. That's the gentle image that, that comes from this list. And then finally, I mean, to wrap it all up, to sort of sum it up, self-control. I mean, there is no greater contrast than between this fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh that Paul just listed. This is the flesh the self uncontrolled running wild with its opportunities and against that the fruit of the spirit produces a self that is in check a self that is intentional a self that evaluates what is good and what isn't and acts accordingly these are the qualities that the desires of the spirit produce in us over time it's a renovation from the inside out friends i think it's helpful to know before we before we wrap up and, and talk about our assignment and all this, I think it's helpful to know that what the Spirit is after is bringing about in us something of the character of God's Son, Jesus. I mean, this, is, this is a Spirit that Paul has already described as the Spirit of His Son. And one of the things that it brings out in us that's similar to what we see in Jesus is trusting God as Father and crying out, Abba, Father. But that isn't where it stops the character that's on display in Jesus' life. Like, it's a character that looks a whole lot like this list, doesn't it? The love that he knew. The joy, even on the night of his betrayal. His peace, facing his own crucifixion. His patience with his disciples who could just never really get there. 
his kindness, even to people that he met walking along the way who stopped him from wherever he was going and had a need that he stopped and and took time to meet. His goodness, which touched everything that he did. His faithfulness to the will of his father and to the needs of his friends as his friends abandon him. He stays his course faithfully all the way to the end. His gentleness, is there ever... Will we ever know a, more, a model of gentleness more clear and obvious and compelling than his treatment of those that he met? We won't. And his self-control. One who is tempted in every way as we are and yet at every step without sin. The Spirit's job is to take what's ugly in us and make it beautiful. To make us into the image of the one who made us so that Christ is formed in us. So over against that storm of desire that is the flesh having its way in us, think of Jesus, who in Matthew 11 invited those who were weary and heavy laden to come to him for rest, to take his yoke on them and learn from him, to learn to be as he is, gentle and lowly in heart, because it's in learning to be as he is that we find rest for our souls. Think of the restlessness of the flesh over against the rest that has promised Jesus and you have the two objectives of these combatants waging war inside of you right now. So it raises the question I want to end with. I mean, I don't think that there's any question which of these two ways we want our lives to go. If we're in Christ, we want to see the Spirit win the battle he's begun. What's our place in it? What's our assignment in his battle that he's fighting? I mean, at one level, we know that, that this is described as fruit. He's the one cultivating it. He's the one who will bear it. It isn't an objective that we are supposed to take up. It's something he's doing in us. And that's great news. There's a lot of comfort in that. We also know that based on this list, the things that the Spirit is doing, I mean, these are not, these are not, uh, it's not a to-do list, is it? It's not a list of behaviors. And there is no law that can reach to the place where the Spirit is working. No law that can cause you to love. No law that can give you joy. No law that creates peace or patience or kindness or goodness or gentleness or self-control. No law, no set of to-dos, no assignment to you gets this work done. So what are we supposed to do? Well, that we have a role to play is clear from this text, especially from verses 24 and 25. And I think verses 24 and 25 give us our two assignments in this battle that the Spirit is waging against the flesh on our behalf, this battle that he will win one day. Verses 24 and 25 help us to see what our assignment is in this battle. Nothing creative here. Nothing that's going to be off your grid already. Simply, our assignment is to crucify the flesh and to walk by the Spirit. Crucify the flesh, that's verse 24. And walk by the Spirit. That's verse 25. And I want to give you a little sense here in the last minutes that we have of what it would look like for you to do both of those things. What can you do to crucify the flesh? What can you do to walk by the Spirit? When you belong to Jesus, Paul says, you have crucified the flesh. Verse 24. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's an active decision that you make that's something you do at one level it's something he's also doing it's something he is rooted in what he's already done but in coming to follow Jesus you decide no the flesh is not me anymore it stays or numbered you side with the spirit in the battle for what you become and yeah of course it's tied to the fact that as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 We've been crucified with Christ, so Christ's death was for us, and Christ's death accomplished for us what what we now don't have to accomplish. It paid a debt that now we don't have to pay. That's part of what happens here. But it's also ongoing. Even though it's in the past, the crucifixion of the flesh is a daily battle that we take up. I've heard several people use this analogy, and because I'm on a martial theme today, I'm going to use it here. It's like the difference between D-Day in World War II and VE Day in World War II. So in case you don't know about what those, what those two days mean, D-Day is the day that the Allies invade uh, France. Because that was a successful battle, everybody knew Germany can't 
win this war. It's over now. But it's not over yet, though, actually. There's still like two more years left of fighting to be done. So between D-Day and Victory in Europe Day, there's a lot of work to be done. Not that will ultimately change the outcome of this war. It's going to happen eventually. But work that still has to be done. We're in the same position now. Because we've been crucified with Christ, because in choosing to follow him, we have crucified the flesh, like D-Day has happened. The battle is not in question overall. But there are many more battles left to be won. Every day the the flesh has to be crucified. And what that means, the fact that the flesh is crucified and still must be crucified rather than gratified, it means that our job is relentless self-analysis. Relentlessly. We've got to pay attention to what's going on inside of us, shine light into places we'd rather not have seen so that we can join the Spirit in his battle against our flesh. That kind of self-analysis means lots of talk back to yourself. You don't just listen to yourself. You speak back. That's, that's a big part of what self-control is. You're not just going to follow along with whatever seems right to you. You're not going to trust your intuitions at that level. Spirit-led Christians know about themselves that the flesh and the spirit are still at war. So rather than simply listening and trusting that inner voice, you analyze it. And you don't just look inside yourself, but you also look outside at what Paul tells us the flesh wants and what he tells us the spirit wants. I mean, what's so useful about these, these lists is that they help us to tell if what we're seeing in ourselves belongs with the flesh or belongs with the spirit, whether it needs to be crucified rather than gratified or followed. One of the things we do is we look at our lives and we say, all right, what causes me envy? That belongs on the works of the flesh. So whatever's feeding envy in me has to be shut down. Verse 16, or verse 17, or excuse me, verse 16, don't gratify the works of the flesh. If it's feeding your envy, get rid of it. What causes me to transgress the boundaries God has put around healthy sexuality? Where are you tempted to move past those boundaries? Well, you can choose either to gratify your flesh or you can choose to crucify it. So confess it to a friend where you're tempted. Cut off your access where you have that ability. Get serious about removing your opportunity to make a bad decision. Just cut off the supply for the flesh. I know it's more complicated than that. I know you've probably tried everything that I just said and you haven't found any victory. But the battle's not over yet. The Spirit is still in you waging war. You get up again and you try again because you know you don't fight by yourself. So go ahead and confess it to somebody and let someone else help you bring light to whatever it is that's going on inside of you. And ultimately, through that help, you will win that battle. What about conflict? Think about all these things in the works of the flesh that have to do with problems with other people. So look at your, look at your life. Where are you in conflict? Whether the other person knows it or not. Where are you in conflict? Find that. Now analyze it. Are you justifying yourself? What you're doing, what you're saying, why you feel the way you feel? Are you lining up a friend to tell you you're right and the other person is wrong? Are you taking steps that actually might escalate the division that's between you? If you are a friend, whatever extent you say yes to any questions like that, Paul's language for what you're doing is gratifying the flesh rather than crucifying it. Analyze your posture in the problem that you've got with someone else. Look for ways to crucify the flesh that rages in you and ask beneath it all, what do I really want? Why do I want it? What does Jesus have to do with what I want? So, I, the, the, the reason that this simple process is so powerful the reason that it's that just bringing a little bit of analysis to what you're wrestling with is, is such a helpful tool in your life is that the flesh just wants you on autopilot. The flesh just wants to be a tornado that no one controls, that just blows through life and destroys everything that it touches. Just by pumping the brakes, zooming out a little bit and asking hard questions of yourself, it's a lot harder for the flesh to just carry you along. You're going to need your friends to help you with that. That's what it means to crucify the flesh. That's partly your assignment, friends, in this battle that's raging inside you right now. But I want to end with the other assignment that you've got. 
Because it's so important that we notice the best way not to gratify the flesh is actually to walk by the Spirit. That's what verse 16 says. Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. It actually doesn't say don't gratify them. He would mean that. He would say that. But that's actually not what he says. He says, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify them. So you don't just have a set of don't do's in this text. You have a positive agenda for pursuing what the Spirit is doing in your life that will be the most powerful tool you've got for fighting back against the flesh. So what does it mean for you to walk by the Spirit? I love the way verse 25 puts it. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There's a great balance to this verse. So if you're a Christian, you already live by the Spirit. You have desires in you. He gave you. You didn't have before. He moved you from death to life spiritually. You live by the Spirit now, and the fruit that Paul lists here is coming out in your life at some point. And because we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's the active choice we have to embrace his work in us. And that's another daily thing. How do we do it? I mean, this is where I'm going to be, once again, just super mundane and, and probably not what you're hoping to hear. We, we see the Spirit at work in Acts and we see all of this miraculous stuff that's happening. You know, people coming back to life and having their eyes opened and speaking in tongues they don't know and all sorts of being transported from one place to another to preach the gospel. You see all this incredible stuff happening in the Spirit there and you want that in your own life. But actually, it looks a whole lot more normal. The work that the Spirit is doing in us is not work that usually looks like that. In fact, to, to, to pursue the work that the Spirit is doing in us for us, it now looks like us just, just embracing the places that he's already told us he'll be at work. Not sitting around waiting on some miraculous transformation to happen, poof, like that. Not waiting to be beamed from one place to another, but just putting ourselves into the places that God's word says, God's spirit changes people. Here's how uh, one person put it. I really like this analogy. He said that the, when Paul uses the language of being led by the Spirit in verse 18, if you take that in light of this bigger package of how the Spirit works, it's not led by in the sense of one guide leading another and you, and, you, and you follow him. It's not led by in the sense of a Daytona pace car, you know, in NASCAR where you've got one car that's setting the pace and everybody else is following behind them. No, it's led by the locomotive in the way the locomotive leads the train. You're hooked up to a power source that you don't have in yourself that pulls you through its power into the place that it's going to go. To be led by the Spirit is to be led like a locomotive leads a caboose. So where is that locomotive's power accessible to us? To walk by the Spirit means choosing to connect to those things through which he works to bring fruit. And that's not a mystery. It isn't miraculous in the same way. It doesn't like, catch the eye. It won't end up in the headlines. But it's still his supernatural power and it's clear to us where that happens from God's word. It's happening right now, friends. That's what you're doing here. That's why you're sitting here listening to God's word explained. Not from someone who, who has some sort of special access to what it means, but just from a friend who tries to study it and pay attention to it and do his best to try to get it to you. You can do that tomorrow with your friends. You can do it in your small groups. You can do it everywhere God's word is talked about. God's spirit uses God's word to bring the fruit of the spirit out in the lives of his people. That's where it happens. You do it in friendships. You do it in corporate worship. You do it through your prayer. But above all, and wherever you do it, you do it through his word. I mean, remember back to what Paul says in Galatians 3. He's pushing back on them because they're using the law to try to grow as Christians. And he's saying, you began by the Spirit. And what he says is, the way he defines that is, hearing with faith. It's the very beginning of chapter 3. The Spirit works when you hear and believe the gospel. So what it looks like for you to connect with, to walk by the Spirit, is to, in every day and in every situation, through wherever you can get it, connect to the promises of God through his word that speak into your life. And when you're plugged into that, God, you're walking by his spirit and good things are gonna happen. I mean, for me, just this week, just, for, just give you one example of what I'm talking about. I sit at my desk, typing to my little computer, trying to prepare a sermon, 
which, you know, honestly is a very strange thing to do, you know? I mean, a big part of what your job is is visible to all your friends, and they see how you did it this week and how much time you spent on it and what you came up with. There's a lot of opportunities for my flesh to run rampant with what I'm doing right now in front of you guys. My pride is involved in it. My, my, um, my desire to be, to be loved and affirmed and worshipped is involved in it. There's, uh, there's a lot of things that can lead to jealousy or, or rivalry or envy that are involved in this kind of work. And so I type into my computer with a little post-it note at the bottom of it that's a quote from Psalm 127 that always helps me think about this part of my work. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. So what's not going to happen through this sermon is my life, my life is just not going to be justified today. This isn't going to do that for me. It isn't actually going to install me as the center of the universe. It isn't going to earn me the worship and praise of devoted following. That's not going to happen. That's what the flesh wants. And it's not only not going to happen, it would be terrible if it did. So what I need to remember is that God builds houses. God uses his word to strengthen his people. God uses the least likely instruments of all to do that. He loves it when it makes no sense why it works. I'm choosing to walk by the Spirit by reading that verse as I stress about my sermon. And remember, unless the Lord builds a house, this whole thing is just a waste of time. So back down the stress level, do your best, and then just trust them. I I need that every day, and you do too. And that kind of walking by the Spirit only comes through His Word. So what you need to do is analyze yourself. You need to figure out what's going on. And then you need to get your friends to help you apply God's Word to it. So that you can crucify the flesh and keep walking by the Spirit. That's it. The real work is His. So let's pray to Him that He'll keep doing it in us. Father, I pray that You would continue to bring out the fruit of the Spirit in the life of our church that every person here would be encouraged today by the work you're doing and not them. I pray that they would trust you with what they can't do, that no one here would feel like they're fighting a battle that's not winnable. I pray that they would leave encouraged to keep on pursuing you where you are to be found, here amongst your people through your word, backed by your spirit. And I pray that that would be enough for us and that you would protect us from thinking we have to get more creative than that. I pray that we would have confidence in your power to change. And that would give us joy today. In Jesus' name, amen.